Let me have you turn to Second uh, Peter, and we're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. We're just doing this little series. Uh, in this book, toward the back of your Bible, <clears throat> if you want to know where it is in the Bible, you get to First Peter. It's the next one, Second Peter. Um, I want to start, so Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Just a little... It almost serves this little passage as a segue between where he started and next week where he does this big exposition on the false teachers in their setting. While you're making your way there, I want to ask you a question. And uh, if you can, try to be honest with yourself. It's a hard question in which to be honest with yourself. What guides you? What, what gives direction to your life? Not, not what you say guides you, okay? Because oftentimes that's something completely different. Not what you tell yourself guides you when it really doesn't, when something like your emotions or the ulterior motives that you hide from everyone else is really what guides you. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about what, uh, what's your source of truth and wisdom that you submit yourself to, that guides your life, that shapes your mind, that gives you clarity in the world? What really guides you? And we're going to look at a passage, and their threat is that they could get lured away by something that will mislead them. You know, uh, a, a lie could be their guide. And they, you can do that. You can faithfully follow falsehood. And it'll take you where it takes you. But it won't, the destination won't be true. So in their situation, it's false teachers. It's people with charisma who are persuasive. And they're the kind of people who can make you think that they have an, an elite insight into the truth. When in all actuality, they are purveyors of the enemy of truth. It's very interesting that the Bible, particularly Jesus and the apostles, spend so much time on false teaching and false teachers lot of time. Now that must be because it's prevalent. It is the pervasive norm and it must also be because we're susceptible. You and I walk around with a constant vulnerability, uh, you know, to the little lie. Probably because, you know, we all want to be told we're pretty, right? We all want to be told that thing that we'd like to do that wouldn't serve us actually will. We all have a threat. What's, what's yours? Do you even know, like that beautiful lie? Because we all have something. And what Peter does here is show us this, you know, this sure ground of hope and how we know. He's going to point to Jesus, no surprise, and the scriptures that tell us about him. So look, let's look at God's word together. It's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths whenever, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I, whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is God's Word. Talk about why we focus on Jesus and the Scriptures that testify to Him. And when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the, the real historical Jesus. You look at the passage as a whole, what is Peter's main point? Think about it, like I said, this is something of a bridge passage where he tells them before, Christ has seen to himself that you have everything you need to live a godly life in a world opposed to him. And so, build on your faith, right? Cultivate deep in your faith, build on your faith, make sure that you live faithfully for Jesus, and there are a lot of benefits to that. And then next week, he's going to talk about false teachers who are telling them the exact opposite. But here, he's, he, he's giving them the ground. What's Peter's main point? What's well, Jesus? Back up for a moment. If you think about why you're here, Jesus is the apologetic for the Christian faith. In other words, what is our case that we make? It's Jesus. Everything rises or falls on Jesus. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, and he didn't do what he, what he, what he actually did, if, if none of that is true, you are wasting your time. Thanks for paying me, but you're wasting your time. Because there is no hope if it's all based on a lie. So everything rises or falls on Jesus. And Peter's main point is this. Jesus, and only Jesus, reigns. And Jesus is coming again. And since that's the case... Don't live as though it's not. To live as though it's not is to base your life on a lie. Jesus reigns, Jesus is coming, so live now in light of then. Right? You're either going to be a steward or somebody outside the kingdom of God. So you're going to face the Lord Jesus one day, and he's either going to say, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's going to say, I never knew you. So live now in light of then. What are you going to base that on? I mean, one of the things that is true about this, everybody worships. But if, if Jesus is at the middle of your life, it affects your worship, your holiness, your love for others, your, your habits, your goals. Now, shouldn't make a, a point like this without backing it up. Where in here do we see that Peter is pointing to the second coming of Jesus? You look at verse 16. Uh, he uses this little phrase, we made known to you, this was our message as apostles, Peter is saying, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now because I know everybody here just loves grammar, right, and all the things that go around it, there's a little phrase, there's a word called hendiatus, so what it means is that, that you put two words together and they make one meaning. And what's in power and coming is a hendiatus. It's two words put together that make one meaning. Uh, we have an English equivalent of that. Like you might say nice and warm, but the one I think of the most is sick and tired. Like, ah, I'm sick and tired of that, right? Now, what you don't mean is, hey, I'm sick. Oh, and I'm also tired. What you're doing is you're conveying with those two things that come together one idea about how you feel about it or what you think. And whenever he says the power in coming, he's really talking about this powerful, majestic return of Jesus. Now that word coming, here's the big clue, in the Greek is parousia. And that's a technical language among the apostles 
where they would signify, you know, Jesus said that he was coming back. And that was the word that they used. That Jesus came the first coming. He came as a suffering servant. He identified with you. Right? He was born into the world as one of us. Lived a righteous life. Went to the cross. Died and was buried. And, uh, you know, for, to the outside eye, that's not going to look super majestic. He says there's going to be a return. This is not just some story. Now, how do we know? You know, I mean, if the suffering servant comes and he basically, he just, it looks like, you know, to a lot of people, he loses. How do we know that he reigns, that he's coming, that uh, we should live now in light of then? Because, you know, it wasn't like Jesus came and set up some kind of a military uh, outpost or, you know, he died without a fight. Well, Verse 19, he references Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the coming and judging and reigning Christ. We have this prophetic word. Um, It's going to talk about its confirmation. We we know because the word is corroborated, the corroborated word. So let's make the case for that. In, in, In verse 19, like I said, he references Old Testament prophecies, so much so that Uh, These are so important because they pointed to the coming Christ, the the one who reigns, the one who will rule, and all that. And there were a lot of people, based on Old Testament Scripture, who assumed that Jesus failed because he didn't throw off Roman rule. It's an obvious promise in the Old Testament, not the Roman part, but the rule part. And so Jesus said he would return, but, you know, people could naturally look at that situation and say, but we don't have any indication. Remember, suffering servant, he comes, he just looks like us. He doesn't really have any great status in the world. And ultimately, he's tried as a criminal and he's killed. We we don't seem to have any indication that he's this majestic king. To which Peter says, "Uh, we do. And he points to the transfiguration. Transfiguration in the Gospels is kind of this mysterious event. Because Jesus is walking around with his guys just looking like a guy. And then they go up, and you know, we read that passage, they go up to the mountain, just Peter, James, and John, and uh, they see him in his glory. And so, connected to this passage, what Peter says is, there's a problem, but there is a coming of the Lord Jesus, a return of the Lord Jesus in power uh, in his presence. How do we know? Oh, the Old Testament prophecies pointed to this. Scripture highlighted uh, this. Now, how does it connect to the second coming that they would see his transfiguration? What Peter is saying in essence is, you saw Jesus come and he humbled himself. And he died and he died so that you could live. He bore your sin, not not because he has any, but so that you could be forgiven. He died in your place. Look so humble and helpless. But we saw a different side to him. We went up that mountain with Jesus and we saw him unveiled. It says that this was his majesty. Uh, look at verse, at the end of verse 16, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That means his kingship, right? His glory of reigning. So, it's like, I mean, no offense, but if we engage with each other uh, in this room, at least to my knowledge, nobody here is royalty, 
right? So we, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, I, uh, I interacted with so-and-so and I saw your, I beheld your majesty, right? Your reigning glory or whatever. And what, what Peter is saying is we were eyewitnesses to that. We saw his majesty. Um, his face was radiating uh, a, a, a shining glory. His clothes were radiating a shining glory. And Jesus was unveiled. He was showing us, like, there's this suffering servant. He's identified with you. But when he unveils, we saw this majestic glory. And then more than that, there was a, cor- a corroboration. Look at verse 17. The Father speaks. The majestic glory is a phrase for God the Father. And he says... Consistent with what we find in the Gospels, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is right. We, we, the majestic glory actually highlights, oh, you see His glory? There's a voice from heaven that says, this is Him. He is the one. He's my Son. I'm pleased with Him in verse 17. And then Peter says, more than that, there's more than that corroboration. That there were three of us who were there. And, and we were... We're eyewitnesses. We were with him, verse 18, on the mountain. Uh, we saw it, verse 16, eyewitnesses. And we heard God the Father identify Jesus to remove any doubt in verse 18. So verse 19, whenever he talks about, uh, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. He's saying all those things that pointed to Jesus, there's been, his transfiguration is a confirmation of that, that he is the reigning Christ, and he will return. But you got more than that. You got the saving Christ who will then return and reign. We'll talk later about why he waits. But that's why he's making this point. Jesus reigns. Jesus is coming. Whatever. Live now in light of then. Um, But there's a problem. There's a problem. Namely, false teachers and their lure. Like I said, Jesus and the apostles spent an incredible amount of time warning about false teaching and false teachers. You know, somebody who teaches, they, 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 they hold themselves out as, a, as somebody who's got expertise, as somebody with authority, and what they assert might sound great. It's just not true or it's misleading. Irenaeus of Lyon once said this. He was an early church leader said, error, error never shows itself in its naked reality. Why? In order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. Quoted that on Wednesday. We're talking about some church history um, where he was dealing with it in the early church. What does error do? It doesn't say, hey, don't believe me. I'm lying. Right? It's, uh, more crafty than all of that. That's, that's why it, it sounds like Peter's making a defense. He's saying, like, our witness is true and credible. We were there. We walked with Jesus. We saw this. We were with him. We heard this. All this confirms the Old Testament prophecy. So now, who is he answering? We're going to talk more about this next week. But there's an interesting question in, in 2 Peter, because the readers aren't specifically identified. And the opponents or these false teachers, are, they're not like really pinned down. So what do we know about what they teach? What are, what's the problem with what these false teachers are selling here? 
Well, what's not clear is the exact details. I mean, you read the whole book and you get a little flavor of it. Like, it, it seems like part of what they're saying is, listen, you have liberty. Do, do whatever you want. You don't have to concern yourself or worry yourself with the judgment. So live however you want to. There's really no accounting, nothing like that that you need to concern yourself with. It's all liberty and grace. Don't, don't worry about God. And so it seems like if you're just, like in general, what's not clear is the specifics. We get hints. But what is clear is that they reject the gospel and they teach something else. And that's dangerous because the gospel saves. Only the gospel, only the good news about Jesus. So let me give you a couple of indications that something is, you know, a foul in the state of Denmark or in the background of the letter of Second Peter. In verse 16, there are a couple of things here, right? Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised Ms. Uh, cleverly devised, in other words, crafted to trick, a made-up story, something that wouldn't be true, something that would sound plausible enough and, uh, you know, sophisticated enough because we like to believe that we operate on that level. Maybe that's what the false teachers were accusing Peter and the apostles of. And Peter is telling them, hey, just look into what we teach. We were there. We walked with Jesus Uh, We saw, we heard, or maybe Jesus is saying this is what the false teachers are. These are people who put an awful lot of work into into taking a lie and making it sound brilliant. Either way, the readers have two appeals, and so do you. One is the gospel of Jesus who reigns, and the other is something dressed up uh, as a sophisticated philosophy. Which one are you going to believe? I mean, the gospel in a lot of ways is humble. It's pretty earthy. It's the idea that God does something that uh, is credible to think about, but that Jesus would be born into the world and identify with you. It become the God the Son, the eternal uh, Son of God, would be born into the world to be one of us. I mean, to this day, Jesus is God and man that he would do that so that you would have a way through. Um, he became ordinary. So anyway, they, they, what do these false teachers peddle? Probably these uh, crafty uh, myths designed to deceive. But you also see in verse 20, another problem with these guys is the idea that a prophecy of Scripture could come from what he says is someone's own interpretation. Verse 20, like it's up to you. Uh, so he, he say, he's saying that what God says doesn't mean just whatever you want it to mean. It means what God intends it to mean. Like when we read God's word, and, and, and by the way, we live in a day and age, this is right up the alley of postmodern deconstruction ideas, that you could say something, and what you intend to, it to mean is just kind of a secondary deal. What it primarily means is whatever I, the hearer, want it to mean, as though there's no real meaning or, or no real truth in the world. And he's talking about at least some level of this with these people because they're hearing God's word and they're basically saying, well, it kind of means what I want it to. Now, he argues this in verse 21 by appealing to the nature of what prophecy is. Look at this together. Let's look at this together. In verse 20, he says, knowing, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone else's, someone's own interpretation 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, lest you say, is he saying that people don't ever make stuff up? Look in chapter 2, verse 1, and then we'll, we'll deal with this more next week. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, and will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So he's acknowledging like, yeah, people make stuff up. They have their different motives for doing this. But what he's saying is when there's a word from the Lord, it's from the Lord. Uh, When it's God's word, it's not just some person spouting off. When it's God's word, the Holy Spirit was guiding the words, inspiring them. Now, again, in a sophisticated day and age, you know, I should use air quotes on that. Uh, you know, we, we still have trouble getting along and living forever in our sophistication, right? Yeah, prolong the inevitable. You're going to need a greater hope. What do you got, 120 years? Uh, you ever seen somebody over 100? It's hard to live that long. Uh, you're going to need a better hope. And so, but... Uh, you know, in the sophisticated ideas, people will say, well, ah, you know, man, we just live in the ordinary so much. The supernatural seems difficult. Right, that's why it's the exception. Right, that's why, I mean, whenever we point, for example, to the resurrection of Jesus and people, you know, kind of the, the argument against that seems to be, well, that's just not the kind of thing that happens. Right, that's the point. It's not the kind of thing that happens. When you die, you die. Jesus broke that mold. He overcame. What about the Word of God? The idea that the God who reigns and creates everything ex nihilo, who can raise Jesus from the dead, could guide people and give them a word that you could bank on? And that's, that's, that's really at the heart of it, uh, the doctrine of inspiration, right? That, that God guides, he works through people, but it's his word that he's speaking through. All right, so that's the problem is you get the idea that there are these false teachers and they're pretty good at having a, a lure to get people distracted from the truth. Uh, clever tales. Um, looking at God's word and, and, and distorting it. You think, well, you know, people can be so, so susceptible to that. It's true. But, I mean, when we think that, we tend to think other people are susceptible to it. But I've told this story before, but it's one of the best ones I can think of to kind of illustrate. I was a, I was a little kid living in Hominy, Oklahoma, and um, back before, I mean, it's a little town, and there was a little addition uh, that they put in on the outside of town where there were these apartments, and they were connected to each other as best I can remember. I mean, I, was, I don't even think I was in school then, maybe four years old. And uh, so we lived right next door to this other family. And in this family, there was this, um, she's probably a couple of years older than me. And uh, nearly as I can remember, she was reasonably cute. Because, uh, you know, that's what uh, you think of sometimes. And probably uh, the top five of the meanest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, maybe just downright wicked and evil. So as an example, as an aside, uh, for some reason, we had fishing poles, one of the families did, out in front between the front doors on our little duplex area. And uh, there were fishing poles there. And I was out and playing in our, you know, common front yard. And this girl starts, she picks up a fishing pole and starts whacking me in the head. 
uh, it turns out that hurts. And I started, I, you know, doing the manly thing, of course. I started crying real loud for my mom. And, I mean, this girl's just whacking me and laughing like she couldn't think of anything that would be a bigger treat than to knock the daylights out of me and see me suffer, right? And so my mom comes out there and sees like little Satan incarnate, you know, whacking her beloved son with whom she was well pleased. And, so, you know, so she starts yelling at her. And get, so this is the kind of person I'm dealing with, okay? And so one time, um, it had been raining. Oklahoma, a lot of rain in the spring a lot of times. And there's a little creek nearby our apartment complex. And my mom told me several times, she said, Listen, whatever you do, you can play out front, but you can't go to the creek. Can't go to the creek. I was like, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, it's like Adam in the garden, man. I was like, whatever, you know, no big deal. And, I mean, you know, looking back, it makes sense because there's a lot of rain, and so the creek was going to be deep, and, you know, a little four-year-old or whatever uh, be a dangerous situation. Well, the little evil girl next door comes out, my mom, you know, as in, you know, doing dishes or, you know, cooking me oatmeal cookies or something like that. So my mom is gone. And this girl says, let's go play down by the creek. And I said, well, my, my mom says, I can't. And she says, oh, we, we could do it. Let's just play down by the creek. And I said, well, no, I mean, my mom said I can't, you know, play down by the creek. And she said, I talked to your mom. And she said it was fine. So I was like, well, hey, it's fine with mom. Let's go play down by the creek. And I didn't realize the girl was probably leading me to my death, right? You know, right? And it was the grace. It was the severe grace of my mom. I mean, I get down there. I didn't get my feet wet. And my mom's, there's this big bank. And I still just remember her. She didn't normally do this, but she had her hands on her hips. And she used my middle name, which I'm not going to share with you this morning. But she hollers out my middle name, she both my names, and she tells me to get myself, uh, uh, that's a paraphrase, up the, up the bank. And, uh, you know, I got back home, and I got an old-fashioned rural Oklahoma in trouble. Okay, I was taught a lesson. And for years, that seemed to me so incredibly unfair. I, I mean, like, I got tricked. She lied to me. She even quoted you. A, a trustworthy source, right? It's not my fault. And the reality is that what my mom was saying was, I gave you truth and you bank on it. Don't you see how easy it is just to, to hear a plausible word? Because I think it would be fun to play down by the creek. And just to go like, this is true, and just walk your merry way to your death, to danger. I mean, what Peter is talking about here is, listen, Somebody, spiritually speaking, is going to come up to you and say, I talked to your mom. I talked to God. This is okay. Um, so let's make a good application. I lived, obviously. And I assume every once in a while I think about her, and because Jesus is in my heart, I pray for her. I assume she's in prison somewhere <laughs> at the moment. Probably on one of those TV episodes of serial killer women, you know, something like that. No, I don't know. I, you know, wish her the best. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we don't live close to each other anymore. All right. So let's make a good application of this. Because their problem is always a problem. Their problem is a problem today until Jesus returns. The good news is that the truth will always be true. 
The bad news is that you're vulnerable to the lie. I wish you weren't. I wish I wasn't. But you are. And it's out there dressing itself up as something better than what it is. And so notice what he says in verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So do well to pay attention. Pay attention to the word. A lot of other things out there saying, hey, pay attention to me. And he says, pay attention to the word. Why? Well, now it's a light that shines in, the dark, in a dark place. You need light? You better not fake it. Or, and then, until the day dawns, he's talking about the second coming, the second time that he mentions it there. Uh, that's the return of Jesus. So the day of the Lord in the Old Testament was a little phrase that meant, uh, you know, there's going to be a day of precise judgment and salvation from God. And that's the return of Jesus. And when he comes, it's the morning star. There's a, there's a Hellenistic background there. Uh, but he says he's lighting up everything, including you, when he returns, right? He's the morning star who will rise in your heart. So the light that Jesus brings to the external world is going to confirm that light that you have. But you're not going to need the prophetic word anymore because all that points to Jesus and he's the light and he's going to be there. There was one time that Jesus... Uh, one of the most interesting stories uh, I think that's recorded about Jesus in the Bible, the story that he tells. It's the parable of the soils. And Jesus says this, and I'll get back to it again. He says, take heed how you listen. Be very careful how you hear the word of God. And he tells this story where uh, there, there were people, you know, he's gathering a following. All these people are coming out to hear Jesus teach. And this is his, you know, this is big lesson. This is his story. He says there's a guy walking around with a bag of seeds, and he throws the seeds around. And those seeds land on different kinds of dirt. Some of it's hard, and it doesn't sink in, and a bird comes. And then some of it sinks in, but it's superficial. It either gets choked out by thorns, or it's on rocky soil, so it's real thin, and it gets scorched out. But there's some that sinks in, and it really bears fruit to this incredible degree that makes all the difference for the harvest. Now, you've got to imagine if you were somebody who was drawn to hear Jesus because he's this profound spiritual teacher about the kingdom of God. And you go out there and you just hear this story, a parable, where Jesus just tells a story about a guy with seeds throwing it on the ground. You go home and you're like, what is that? But to the disciples, he gave the meaning. He said, that seed is the gospel. It's God's word. That's that good news. And the soil is your heart. And so when the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that he came and identified with us, uh, died on the cross for your sin, was buried and rose again on the third day to overcome death so that you could have his life, you could have forgiveness, and you could be brought into his family. When that word hits your heart, you either there's the hard heart that rejects it, uh, there's the superficial heart, that, uh, you know, like likes it at first, but then got kind of bored with it, wants to move on to something else. Or there's the heart that gets, that gets worried with the, the cares of the world and all that stuff. Maybe, maybe it, the, the cost of following Jesus is hard. It costs you something. But there are people who receive it as God's word. This is truth. This is salvation, the way to believe and live. Just 
I, I put my faith in Jesus and only in Jesus. Because if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be okay before God, it's going to be by grace. It's going to be only on the basis of what Jesus has done for you and nothing else. And Jesus says, be careful. Watch how you listen, because that's the only word. It's not like, here's a way to be saved, and then there are these 14 others. You miss this one, you miss the only way. So take heed how you listen. You've heard the good news, is that what you're hanging on to? Or are you wandering into lesser comforts? Like, a, Would you be able to put yourself in a Second Peter setting and say, really, like, ostensibly, I know I've heard the word, and I know you have, because we are faithful to try to point you to Jesus week in and week out here. We want you, if we want you to know anything, it's who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So believe in him. Receive Jesus. But are you starting to wander into these lesser comforts? Uh, these things that compromise you? A, kind of an alternative truth or a distortion of truth? Or for you, it's very easy to do this in America, um, the elevation of lesser things. What are you giving yourself to? Uh, what does this look like? If you want a way to assess this, what does your worship look like? What does your holiness look like? What does your love for other people look like? What are the most profound habits in your life? What are your goals? It'll tell you something about whether it's God's word that is shaping what's going on inside you. So here's just to put it in a nutshell. Um, have you received the message? If you've never believed in Jesus, we just invite you to do that today. There's, God is so gracious that he's made a way and it's Jesus, so trust him. Be forgiven. Find life in Jesus. That's the only place you're going to find it. Have you received the message? you believe that? Well, listen, Jesus reigns. He's coming. Live now in light of then. But there's a problem. There's always a problem, and it's the lure of the lie. And the answer to that problem is this. It's the light of Jesus. So let's, as a church, be committed to keep that light on. And why don't you, if there's any drift that's going on, talk to God for just a moment and say, I want to confirm this now, that the light of Jesus is at the center of my life. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your grace. Um, we need the warning. It's easy to be, believe the lie. Sometimes we want to. Um, that the truth is what's going to give light and set us free. And as we focus on Jesus... Uh, the one who will return in glory. It was the confidence that he reigns, that he's returning, and that we should live now in light of then uh, for our sake and for your glory, but also for the good of the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.